there are different ways of approaching conflict. Many of them can be manipulative. Um, and ultimately, the experience of the victims possibly has the greatest integrity, and their response to what is happening to them may be the only authentic uh, response um, as, a, as a very general principle. And I guess uh, the objective in The Longest Winter was to paint a portrait of some of those people as they were having that experience and simply let their voices uh, be heard, uh, whether they reached any conclusion about what was happening to them or whether they simply experienced that without any real understanding of what was happening to them. In both cases, or in any case, uh, these experiences are authentic. This is how people react to terrible things that happen to them. I quite like to... I often say this, I'm, I'm quite lazy. Uh, I quite, I quite, I quite like to hear the writer that, that I'm talking to describe their book. Um, this book, I think, has been written over a long period of time in, diff- in lots of different ways and different sorts of layers added to it. Um, it's, a wh- it's a little while since it's been published, but so where, where, are, you, where are you at with it today? What, what is it? Um, you're, you're in London. You come over from Sarajevo, I'm right, to, yes. um, to London to participate, you were saying just off, off camera, <laughs> off microphone, in a, in a conference about missing... About missing persons in the Western Balkans. Uh, and by missing persons, we mean uh, people who disappeared in the course of the conflict and no record of them was ever found or of what happened uh, to them. And of course, the, the most famous case of that is Srebrenica, where 8,000 people, almost all of them men, uh, went missing in uh, July 1995 after being taken away um, when the enclave uh, fell to Serb forces. And it has taken more than 20 years to find and identify 7,000 of those 8,000 people. There's still 800 to 1,000 who have not been accounted for. Um, I think uh, your original question... Well, I was going to say, does that, fra- <laughs> does that frame how, you're, how you might think, think about the book right well, now? Well, um, in reference to uh, the length of time uh, that it has taken to gestate, um, I wrote the first uh, version of The Longest Winter in 1993. I began it in hospital after I'd been injured in a landmine explosion in central Bosnia, and I finished it in Sarajevo uh, in a very cold apartment um, in the western suburbs. And it was filled with reportage. Basically, you could look out the window and describe what you saw and put it into the book. Uh, over the subsequent years, I revisited it and I made it considerably less uh, reportage and developed the characters. And as I developed the characters, I'd like to think that the experience became more authentic rather than less authentic because I began to see that experience not through my eyes but through their eyes. And in many cases, something that struck me was that in the middle of a conflict, most people will not articulate the big political issues that are ostensibly the cause of the conflict. They will articulate their own loss, if they've experienced loss, and most people will have, whether they've been chased out of their homes or whether a member of their family has been killed. 
and they will see the war through that prism and they will never see it as a positive thing. And I think always when I, when I see people uh, describing conflict in terms of patriotic uh, achievement, I think either it hasn't happened to you yet or you must be remarkably insensitive to normal human pain and suffering to imagine that there can be anything triumphant or glorious about this. Um, so I think the, the experience of the characters uh, is probably the thing that I was trying to articulate, and those reflect people that I met in 1992 and 1993. So that sense of a sort of a big picture of this incredibly com- complex, of this incredibly complex c- conflict that takes in ethnicity and religion and centuries of uh, sectarian, I suppose, sectarian violence. When you're actually in the middle of it, in some ways, those kind of, I guess, those global narratives and and the sort of realpolitik and then the 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 connection to the United Nations coming, that disappears. What you're dealing with is what day to day, second to second existence. I think it very largely disappears. And one of the things that was so striking in Sarajevo in 1991 and 1992 was the fact that every person you met articulated this idea that I have nothing against whichever community might be perceived as being antagonistic. I have friends, I have relatives, my teacher was this, my next-door neighbour was that. I don't have any animosity towards anybody. And the fact that we so easily uh, begin to view a conflict in communal terms, and we do it in Syria, we do it in Iraq, we do it all over the world, wherever there is a conflict, the easiest shorthand becomes community, whether that's religion or ethnicity. And in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there is, in fact, no ethnicity because all of the communities are ethnically the same. There are bigger differences in the United Kingdom between lowland Scots and Highlanders than there are among all of the Slavs in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So in terms of ethnicity, that, all, that was right. already you know, not realistic. Um, so you have uh, this... This slide into communal identity uh, divisions, which happens incredibly quickly, and within the space of a year, people had begun to see themselves as they were being portrayed. I did a story on um, Islam in uh, Sarajevo at the end of 1992, and... I interviewed several Muslims sitting in a bar, one of the few bars that was um, was uh, still operating. And, of course, that in itself was somewhat paradoxical. And uh, I spoke to one guy and he said, yeah, well, I've started, you know, I, I kind of... I, I, I try now and, and pray five times a day. He said, I didn't used to, but if they're going to kill me because I'm a Muslim, I should really try and harder to, to be a better Muslim. And he said that in an amusing way, as in, isn't this ironic... Um, and I think the, the way people can be, first of all, uh, defined and then kind of forced into those um, identity um, uh, uh, spheres and then begin to think, well, if you are going to identify me like this, perhaps I should recognize that and now recognize that I belong to a particular group. And 25 years after the conflict in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there is still a very strong um, 
uh, undertone of uh, civic society where people will say, I'm a citizen, rather than I might as well be an Eskimo as to identify me by a religious affiliation. But that has really been very, very seriously undermined. And in reality, people recognize very quickly which of the communities, which of the constituent peoples you belong to by your name or by something that you say. Um, and that's very sad, I think. I mean, we've, the, it's a society that once uh, has had a long tradition, five centuries of creative coexistence among different cultures. Bosnia-Herzegovina was in many ways a model for the rest of Europe. They were <laughs> practicing multiculturalism long before other people were. And the people who were uncomfortable with that, who set about to destroy it, were pretty successful in doing that. And that has been a tremendous loss in Southeast Europe. Were people aware of, of, of where that, that drive to, to name and divide was, was coming from? I mean, it's, so what's the, the side of it? I'm slightly sort of... I get rather rather confused there's obviously a kind of a, a genuine fear and hate, hatred of you know of the other from 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 all all different sides but there seems to be a matter of often of political expediency as i say i would describe it as a slide towards communalism people were always aware of the different cultural affiliations of their neighbors in large parts of Bosnia-Herzegovina, if you drive through small towns, you see a mosque and then you see a church. I mean, it's, it's just a, a very, very common sight. And there may have been a predominantly Muslim side of the village, a predominantly Catholic side or a predominantly Orthodox side, but they were very mixed and they would lend one another tools. Famously, they would help one another with harvest and so on and so forth. Um, so this, this recognition of the other existed, but it was a benign recognition right. for the most part. What I think you can do very quickly when people are afraid is say we must stick to our group and our group is people who have the same names that we have and the other people, even if they were very good neighbours, have different names, and they'll be doing the same with their people. I know we're already talking about their people. And as soon as we're talking about our people and their people, we're, we're on a slippery slope towards what happened in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Right. And it was worst in Bosnia and Herzegovina because in former Yugoslavia, it was the most mixed part. It was the, the republic with the most mixed marriages, for example. Sarajevo was the city with the most uh, mixed marriages. So when people began to recognise our people and their people in Bosnia and Herzegovina, that created problems at the level of individual apartments and families, and then that spread out through villages, the countryside, and into the cities. Um, so as I say, I think it's a slippery slope, and I think that's addressed to some extent in the novel because um, we look at how characters realised at the beginning of the conflict that people who had been neighbours who had worked together... Um, were suddenly suspicious of one another and as soon as you have those seeds of suspicion then uh, I would say unscrupulous politicians can work in that but my view always was it wasn't so much they were unscrupulous I think in many cases they were incompetent and they were actually not particularly talented and that's an easy crutch for a not very successful politician is to begin 
banging that drum. I mean, it's my memory. I mean, it's, a threat, but, uh, it's my memory of, of watching a documentary where Milosevic seemed to be rather floundering until he just discovered he could exploit certain yeah. kinds of, yeah. of, 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 of the, that kind of rape. Rage, and, he, and it was as much to protect his own position that he began to yes to, to, to call for that. And it's it's an easy <clears throat> it's an easy political option to sloganise. You can reduce that kind of thinking very quickly to handy sound bites. Mm. Whereas to articulate a vision which involves tolerance and coexistence and let's look at this in a different way is a much, much more difficult thing. It's a more uh, complex, abstract presentation of society. And if I, and I, actually there is a bit in the book where one of the characters discovers how, how potent it can be when you begin to articulate victimhood, when you start to say, we have suffered for mm-hmm. 500 years. Again, that's like the analogy with uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We haven't been here for 500 years. I may have suffered, and it's unlikely that I've suffered specifically because of mm. that particular thing that you're identifying. It's more likely because of things in my life. But if I say we have suffered for 500 years, suddenly I can sublimate everything that's unsatisfactory about my life and put it all down to the fact that they, the other people, are, um, are, are out to get me. And, and that was very successful, unfortunately. The clearest articulation in, in the novel is when the character of Milena, now I'm going to mess this up, her experience of, 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 of surviving in um, Sarajevo in the present is, is, is punctuated by remembering her yeah. upbringing now as a force. Forcha. Yeah. Uh, a peaceful and harmonious place that one day, almost sort of within a, a period of very short, short is it, I mean, days or weeks, yes, I guess. Yes, days. Um, where citizens started to look at each other as in, in terms of otherness and enmity. Yeah. Where, where did that felt very personal as well? I don't know. I know, I know you've, you've, you've married a, um, a, Bo- a Bosnian. Am I right? Yes, uh, my wife is uh, from Sarajevo. Um, she worked for Slobodjenja, which was the daily newspaper that continued to work throughout the siege. And uh, we met uh, when um, we were attending the same press conferences in, um, uh, at the UN. And uh, shortly after we met, uh, Maria was interviewed by uh, CNN and she stood outside her newspaper building and said, what we're about is living together and we believe that that's possible to do. Um, that was a view that was uh, held by many, many people, particularly in cities in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Malena's experience is in Foča, which is in the eastern part of okay. the country. Um, it's not... Uh, I mean, it takes about... Now it takes about an hour and a half to drive to Foča because the roads are still very old-fashioned, 1960s roads, um, but it's not far. Mm. Um, it is far in the sense of going from the city to the countryside. It's significantly different uh, culturally. It's beautiful. It's on the banks of the, or near the Drina. And um, in Foča, you had uh, both Serbs and uh, Bosniaks, which are Bosnian uh, Muslims. Um, Milena's uh, own background is not made explicitly clear, although her name is Serb. Um, but she may be uh, the product of a mixed marriage. And it's her brother-in-law who actually never really takes her to heart, always regards <coughs> her as an outsider. 
and it's her brother-in-law who plants the seed mm. in her husband that she may have been unfaithful and she may have been unfaithful with the manager of the bar where she works and his name is Muslim. None of this is made particularly mm. explicit but what I was trying to explore was the possibility that people will take their own disappointments and their own limitations and their own shortcomings of personality and they will pour those into a political uh, project where they can vent all of those frustrations and her brother-in-law becomes the person who can articulate very cleverly and very persuasively the fact that we have been victims for 500 years and they are the people who are oppressing us and we have to, um, we have to come to our own defence. And that also, I think, um, there was a, a Hungarian humorist uh, who was popular in the 60s and the 70s called uh, George Mikesh. Mm. He wrote How to Be an Alien. Mm. And he also he wrote some very funny stuff on uh, patriotism. Uh, and one of his points was, if I told you, actually with Donald Trump this might all have changed, but if I told you that you know, I'm the best writer in the world and I live in the most wonderful house and my, you know, my, my family is the good... You'd very quickly think, God, this guy's weird. But if I said, oh, my country's the most beautiful in the world and we've produced so much and, and we've had so many inventions, people think, yeah, he's, he's, he's proud of his country. So you, mm. there is that phenomenon, I think, where people at one remove are able to do things that they couldn't do if they were speaking in purely personal terms. And I think that that kind of uh, jingoistic nationalism may well have a connection to uh, psychological issues where the person you know, may feel horribly aggrieved, but they can't address that in terms of their own experience, so they address it collectively and it becomes legitimate. Yeah, he's, I, th- I think the word that was used was he's, his, his particular skill was in, is in articulating his resentments. That's right, um, yeah. Which were obviously kind of <laughs> personal failings, but... Do you think there was this? Uh, I mean, you've mentioned Trump, who, who who's kind of successfully tapped into perhaps those sorts of feelings of where personal lives have been ignored. And was there something similar going on? Do you, do you feel before before Sarajevo that uh, and people were feeling abandoned, um, were feeling that they hadn't made the, the huge leaps for whether after the fall of the, the Berlin Wall? Was there was there a sense of the, the country not moving on and that people were being left left behind? So it's very easy to sort of tap into a into a movement that makes them feel... Well, the conventional uh, historical analysis is that uh, throughout the 1980s, um, Yugoslavia was experiencing a kind of trauma in reverse because they had been essentially economically and politically beneficiaries of the Cold War Mm. because they'd been able to play one side off against the other. As the Cold War wound down and then ended, they were left without that crutch and economically (coughs) Yugoslavia went through a... A, a precipitate uh, decline. So you had uh, an economic crisis, which then the political establishment that had been there for 45 years was unable to address, did not have the capacity to address. And I remember there was a piece in The Economist in 1987, and it was describing Milosevic's initial recourse to nationalism, and it didn't, to its credit, but it, it bracket Milosevic with the other. Um, leaders who were emerging in other parts of Central Europe as the communist regimes um, deteriorated, but it nonetheless, you know, very generally put him in that bracket. 
that here is the post-communist uh, message emerging. And I remember reading that and not thinking anything of it, thinking, yeah, fair enough, it's, mm. a, it's another former communist who's now talking about reform and all the rest of it. But the reality was that the, he was talking about a different kind of post-communist uh, experience and nationalism was something that was conveniently expropriated and it could not possibly work and it didn't work and none of the constituent parts of former Yugoslavia could say that that process has been in any way beneficial. Uh, peaceful dissolution might well have been possible uh, along the lines of Czechoslovakia um, but the way that it was done was absurd if you even look at the basic arithmetic of numbers of different uh, constituent peoples in former Yugoslavia you can't have a situation where one group would dominate the others it makes no sense, it's Mm. not politically a, a, a viable project um, and the end result was that you had uh, a violent uh, dissolution of the country and the biggest casualty of that was Bosnia and Herzegovina. And again, the, the paradox is that this is a country where people are extraordinarily sophisticated, mm. where humour is absolutely rapier-sharp, where people make jokes among themselves about themselves in ways that you have to get the nuance to, to mm. see the, the joke, and everybody does. This was a country which was really uh, a centre of um, a very sophisticated and creative... I hate to say meeting of cultures because it's such a cliche, but it is true. And in art, in literature, in theatre... They had in Sarajevo a famous tradition for dreadful uh, Yugoslav pop music. I mean, I really do not like that kind of music, but that was the place you went to if you were an aspiring pop star in former Yugoslavia and they had recording studios and they had a a musical tradition with several orchestras and so on Um, they had all of those things it's not a place that was accidentally or uncomfortably multicultural it's a place that was very comfortably and creatively Mm -hmm. multicultural